0: good morning if you have your bibles open them with me to the book of john the gospel according to john chapter four and uh, this is my prayer that the lord will bless you today and fill your hearts with joy i also want to welcome jared and laura brank uh, visiting with us and laura will be staying with us for some time at the ministry center and you can make sure to uh, make them feel welcome uh, after the service would be uh, be good to do that. <laughs> Sometimes I think through what I'm saying, and uh, I don't know if it comes out right. Uh, I'm sure you're like that as well, right? Uh, make plans tonight uh, to join us for communion. Uh, the Lord um, has given us that great uh, gift of communion as we come together in, in fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Lord in a special way. Uh, tonight and as you're coming make preparations for that be praying uh, and uh, let the word of God let the spirit of God be be searching your heart and your life and there might be things you need to take care of before you come that'd be great to come prepared wouldn't it and it's always a joyful uh, celebration time of praise and testimonies and singing and of course time of the word and so I want to encourage you to do that tonight at seven o'clock uh, make sure to be there John chapter number four, we've been going through a series of the gospel of John for those of you visiting with us and um, we took a break for Christmas and New Year's and and so now we are back in the gospel of John chapter four. I want to begin reading in verse uh, 19, I'll read down to verse 26, you can follow along with me. John four nineteen through 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning we can gather together, sing praises unto you, uh, and even uh, be obedient to that uh, exhortation of the psalmist. Uh, So we pray that you would just continue to speak to us through your word this morning, the work of your spirit. We give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen. Worship continues to be one of the most significant marks of any people. Uh, We marvel and study ancient civilizations, and as we do that, our study um, always comes to uh, the existence or their understanding of the existence of God, uh, the central... worship life of a people because it was that worship which brought them together and unified them as a people. The perception about God and about the world around them, the Mayan temples and Egyptian deities, tribal gods in Africa, around the world, Native American spiritual worship. Uh, Every religion and people group is marked by Their understanding of who God is, that's their theology, but not only that, but also by the response to who God is in the way they worship or in the worship that they offer. Worship is uniting uh, in that sense and central to the particular way of life. I think you would agree with that. And I would say that is even true in communistic and atheistic nations as they worship the state. Tozer's right when he said that no civilization has ever risen above its perception of God. Uh, That is, their understanding of God is the most important thing about them. That's true for you as well. Uh, Who you believe God to be and your response to God is the most important thing, driving thing about you. I would also add to that that people have never risen above the need or the expression of, uh, the need to worship or the expression of worship that is something ingrained in each one of us. We are worshipers. Uh, we are created to worship. And our culture is sensitive to this strange diversity and melting pot of all sorts of cultures and and, and religious beliefs uh, in society. And it makes it kind of hard to kind of navigate through that uh, in, in America in some ways. The only or the greatest sin may very well be dogmatism in any way when it comes to God. Uh, I was reading an article of an ordained Methodist minister that serves in the Congress, um, opening up Congress in January of 21 with a prayer which he ended by saying, And dare I ask, O Lord, peace, even in this chamber now and evermore. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths, a man and a woman. Uh, such uh, of a statement is absurd in and of itself, even with the fact of a man and a woman, uh, rightly so, a man just says, so be it, Lord. Uh, but you see this kind of confusion when it comes to the reality of worship, and it, it undermines, it misses the complexity of what it means to believe in God and what it means to know how to respond to God. In fact, what we find as we look across the board among different religions, that there is a conflict in worship. It not only unifies us as a people, as a civilization, but it also also divides us. And it divides us sometimes in great and dangerous ways. You find that even in our text this morning. So why so many outlets? We were created to worship and why are there so many outlets or so many expressions, so many deities, so many different ways in which people understand God and, and how to respond to him. And I think Romans 1 helps us. You can turn there with me. Romans 1. Just turn left or turn right. Yeah, that's right. I turn left. Don't go left. That's the wrong way. Romans 1 and really the whole first chapter captures this uh, beginning in verse number 18 uh, and we'll just read through some of this beginning in verse 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth For what can be known about God is plain to them, that's worth underlying in your own Bible, maybe not the pew Bible, but yours, (laughs) but God has shown it to them for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. It is not that humanity has rejected the idea of God. And I know there is a group within our culture and, and within the world that, that claims there is no God and God is dead, following the, the path of Nietzsche, but even that they put their hope and their trust. They put what they need from God in humanity. So all they've done is what everyone else has done, and they've exchanged God. So it's not ultimately rejecting the idea of God that is our problem. We find all these outlets. It is the fact that we've exchanged the glory of God for something else. And the Old Testament was trees, and rocks, and stones, and imaginations. It was a combination of animals and man and all sorts of things like that. It was moon and stars and demons and and angels and all the other things that we find throughout the Old Testament and many places in the world. In our culture, in America, it is sex and money and power. It is prestige. It is spiritualism. It is political parties and the list goes on and on. We've exchanged. We are at, at, at our very heart, at our very core, worshipers, and yet we've exchanged God. We've rejected Him and we've replaced Him for something else. And it has had a lasting impact on our lives. In fact, it just as we have distorted the image of God, that thing which we were. Worship, that thing which we call God, is continually distorting us as image bearers of God. In his book on missions, Piper asserts that the whole goal of missions is the restoration of the worship of God. I think he's right. He says missions exist because worship doesn't. By that, he's not saying that we're not worshiping. We are worshiping. We're claiming and and boasting and exalting in something. It's just we're not boasting and exalting in God, the one who all worship is due, our creator. And so he says that is the reason mission exists. Well, it is a subject that we find ourselves here in John chapter number four, between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And just to get our feet under us, just to give a reminder of where we're at and, and, and a little bit of what's going on in the, in the narrative, uh, Jesus has asserted at the beginning of chapter number four that he needed, he must go through Samaria, he must be about the Father's business, and as he comes there, he breaks all prejudice and social norms by asking this Samaritan woman uh, for a drink of water. The woman responds to him with a little bit of, some say with a little bit of, I don't know, a little attitude, I guess, that happens, and said, what are you doing asking me for a drink of water? You're a Jew. I'm unclean. Why would you ask me for a drink of water? And a woman on top of that, you can read some of the history of that yourselves. And so Jesus goes forward, not just asking the woman for a drink of water, but he offers to her. Uh, this soul-quenching, uh, life-giving water that would well up in her everlasting life. We see that here in verse number 14. He, he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink of water and I would give you living water. Verse number 10, the woman says to him, um, well, you don't have anything to draw with. You're asking me for something to drink. You only have a cup. Uh, Where are you getting it from? Jesus says, well, your water is is just temporary and it's just not going to last. You're going to have to keep coming, coming, and coming. Verse number 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him, I will give him, will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus looks at this woman and says, if you ask of me, I will give you the Holy Spirit, which gives life. That's what he's saying to her. Well, in the process of this, he exposes where she is and the reality that he knows who she is and exposing her past, her plight. She had been married five times. She's living with a guy now, give up on the institution of marriage, and and here you come to this great this great dialogue of what worship is. And so some suggest that we come to this because she is like like changing the subject. You know, that's what you do. I was told the other day, if you want to end a conversation, just start talking about the weather. That means you're done talking. There's nothing more to say. Is that true? Well, some of us guys never get past the weather, so I don't know what that's saying either. And so she perceives that there's something spectacular about this guy. There's something... Uh, something Um, about him and the fact that he exposed her sin. He has some special insight from God. And so why not go ahead and settle the age-old debate that had been going on for a couple of hundred years and and figure out where we're supposed to worship? Is it here or is it there? Is it on the mountain here or is it in Jerusalem? But it also may be that her understanding or her question of worship may be close to the heart of what's going on in her life. It is Milton Vincent who said this, rightfully so, worship has everything to do with the thirst of one's soul and her thirst being exposed, coming to how can one be right with God? How can one come and offer his sacrifices unto God? How can one, where do we go with all of this? And that's the question that people ask day in and day out in one way or another. It is in this question of of worship that Jesus gives us clarity on the subject. But he doesn't begin with a location. He begins with a reality that is not where you're to worship. It's who you're to worship. Look at it with me again. Beginning in verse number 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And some suggest this reference back to the prophet, which is to come after Moses. Uh, The one that even Israel themselves, the nation of Israel was anticipating. Verse number 20, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus responds there, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Just a little background. The Samaritans taught that true worship, uh, to worship God, uh, it it could only take place here in this Mount Mount Gerizim. It is here that um, the children of Israel had people standing on this mountain as they were entering into the promised land, that they were... They were crying out before the children the blessings of God for faithful obedience to the covenant of God. They were saying, blessed are you, blessed are you, as they were passing on into the promised land. It was here that it was believed that Abraham built his first altar to the Lord in the promised land. It was here, of course, Jacob's well and, and the other things like that that brought significance to the nation of Samaria. Around 400 B.C., uh, Samaritans built a temple there and it was there where they built an alternative to the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And there they taught their people continually, this is where you to worship God. In fact, uh, one commentator said this, that they even claimed that Mount Gerizim was the highest mountain on the earth uh, just because of its significance. Of course, we know Opposite of that is the Jews and their uh, their understanding of Jerusalem and the temple of God and the place that God has set his name, his house. This is where the sacrifices would be offered up. This is the place where the nation of Israel would be gathered around and come together to worship. It was the thing that unified them, the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And yet what we find here, Jesus' words may seem a bit radical for us. Uh, radical for any Jew and especially for the idea of the Messiah. Notice again verse number 21 responding to this place or that place where people ought to worship or they're supposed to go. Jesus said to her, "Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship God." He's looking beyond the temporary moment and and Jerusalem again was the center of life for Israel, this temple The children that were born, they would go up there and they would they would do all the ceremonial things that were need to be done there. It was it was their way of life. And Jesus is looking beyond that and saying there's coming an hour where it will not matter whether it's in Jerusalem or in 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 Samaria or wherever else it is. God will be worshipped. The hour is coming is now here. Well, what is a sinner to do? What is a worshipper to do? Where Where are you to go? Where are you to take your case and your offering, your sacrifice? And Jesus says it will no longer be about a place, some pilgrimage, some location of significance. The gathering of God's people will found be found in a person, and not a place. That's true today. His argument shifts on this. We find later on in verse number 24, reminding us that God is spirit. He does not have a physical body. He does not exist in, with arms and legs bound to a particular space and time. You and I do. That's how we're made. You, you exist, you live. You, you're, the essence of your being exists in one particular place, in the seat that you're at right now at this moment. You're not somewhere else. Now, your mind may be somewhere else at this very moment, but you exist in the moment right here and now. That is not true about God. God is spirit. He is omnipresent in the same proportion in every place, if we could say that. Now, to put it another way, he is no more present in Jerusalem than he is in New York City, in the middle of it in Times Square. He is all places at all times. Solomon reminded us of this when he dedicated the temple in Second Chronicles six eighteen, when he says, "But will God indeed dwell with man on earth?" Now consider what he says true about God. Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you; how much less this house that I have built thought about the, the the magnitude of who God is it says the highest of heavens heavens cannot contain you how can this house contain you or isaiah 66 1 and 2 thus says the lord heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool what is this house that you have built for me and what is the place of my rest all these things my hand has made so all these things come to be declares the lord But this is the thing to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You can imagine earth as a footstool. I had coffee at Ed and Faith's house this week and they have a footstool there and you can put your foot on it. And God says, that's earth to me. And think about how big he is, how great, the grandeur of God. Think about it in the, in the lens of the proportion which the Bible gives us over and over again. There is no one like him, nothing like him. And Jesus is saying he will fill the earth. The knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth. That's what he's trying to communicate. The time is coming, and, it, and it's coming with a promise that not only will the Jews worship him, not just in Jerusalem, But you, and the you here in John 4 is plural, you Samaritans. You, the nations, will worship him. To the ends of the earth, the knowledge of God will go. It's not to say that the temple didn't serve its purpose. We know that. And he does that by affirming, one, a reminder that the Samaritans' worship was ignorant and wrong. Does that seem harsh? It's bold, but it's true, isn't it? Jesus said to her, believe me, the hour is coming neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. It isn't just the the idea of intention. It isn't just the possession of antiquity. It isn't just having rituals and traditions. Jesus looks at a Samaritan woman that had all of these things and a nation that had all of these things, and he says, your worship is ignorant. It is is unfounded. It is wrong. You don't know who you're worshiping. They had five books of the Old Testament. They cling to Moses in the books that he written, yet he still looks at them and says, your worship is not right. And we must be clear. We are worshiping people. We live in a world with a plurality of religions. As some would say, all steeples point up. And yet there is the fact that not all worship is right and acceptable to God. The temple served its purpose. He says the Jews, they worship and they know whom they worship. They know what they worship for salvation of the Jews. And that just simply means the Jews serve God. They have God's law. God given them his covenant and promises, revealed himself to them through his word. And the climax of that is through salvation, the gift of the Messiah to the world. But he gives us a particular shift, doesn't he? The hour is coming that the true worshipers will worship him. And again, just to emphasize, not around a geographical location, but around a person. We offer praise and adoration to God, but we do through a different venue, through a different place. Not in Jerusalem, not in a temple, not in the things we see with our hands, not in the building that we come together here, but in the person of Jesus Christ himself. He mentions earlier in John chapter number 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said it had taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. If the temple was the central focus of the Jewish religion and life, it was a place that gathered them together and brought them in unity, then it is Christ now that brings us together and gives us the substance of our unity. It is Christ who is the mediator of the new covenant reconciling us to God. It is Christ that is the reconciler of man to man and woman to woman. It is Christ who brings that restoration and he himself is the foundation for all that we do and possess and have. In fact, he unites us not only in those ways, but all the promises to God's people are yes and yes in Christ. So it isn't the, the temple mount and it isn't all the other places that we could fix our mind and attention to. It is, it is now found in Christ which brings us together. And you and I gather every Sunday and every time we gather to exalt and praise and offer humble submission to God the Father gathered around the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not about you. When we gather this morning and we offer a praise, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. We worship in Christ the Heavenly Father. That's what He's saying. We will worship the Father. God is those who worship Him. That's not to say that you don't come this morning with needs and there's that. And you don't come down, I'm sure that we could take a list of what's going on in your life and get a truckload of burdens this morning if we just all piled them together. You add to that the perception of worship, which is just mainly singing. Are we missing the point? Shouldn't it be more about us? And the answer is no. No. You and I don't need therapy. You and I don't need the focus on us. We had the focus on us all week. What you and I need is divinity. What we need is a glimpse of the majesty and the greatness and grandeur and glory of God, of the goodness and faithfulness of our Savior, of the help and the, the changing power and work and convicting work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we most need. It is in our worship of God that we ourselves are being challenged and changed. And when we get that all backwards, we, miss the, we mess the whole thing up. We need, we need our attention turned on Christ. We need our attention turned on God. That's what we come. We come to worship him, not ourselves. Now, there's two venues of worship. I want to mention these briefly before we look at how we're to worship. And that is, one, we worship by the very lives we live. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that, doesn't it? We present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The way you live your life is meant to be lived out as an offering, a gift to God. Not one-time thing, right? Right? That's what a dead sacrifice is. You get that, you offer it once, that's all you offer it. You can't do it again. But he says that you're to present your bodies as a living, a continual offering unto God, sacrifice to his glory, for the glory of God, day after day. And you and I can do that while we check the mail, and we can do that while you go to the grocery store and and fix a broken sink and all the other ways God works and moves us in our life. And what is just simply saying that our life in itself is an act of worship. I hope you see that. And think about that in your own life. Is, does it reflect that? Does your life throughout the week reflect the reality of the greatness of God and who he is and live in such a way to bring honor and glory to him? Do you reflect that in your home, men? Women, moms and dads, the place you work, the relationship with others. The second way we see this played out is in corporate worship when we gather together with the saints. The Bible instructs us on the Lord's Day that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some have. But as we gather together, it is the praise of our lips, it is our voices and our lives and, and humble submission to the word that we offer up as worship unto God. We, are come, we have come this morning to, to adore and think and pray and consider and rejoice in the reality of God and His goodness. And in that we are encouraged and find help. Now Jesus gives to us in this passage, and I want to look at this with you just in the time remaining we have the two ways we are to worship God. We find that here in verse number 23 and 24. He said, The hour is coming and is now here, and that hour he's speaking is the, the this death and resurrection, his exaltation, the gospel. Uh, When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In the late 90s and early, uh, early this century, the church went through what we have often referred to as worship wars, primarily because we considered worship as music not just music, the style of music was at the very, it was one of the catalysts which brought about the tension between people and churches, splitting and, and causing all sorts of fights. Bands and lights with a particular setting and jeans with graphic tees was pitted against traditional hymns with stuffy ties and, and organs. Some of you may have been in churches that, uh, that waded through that kind of chaos Choirs and solos were seen as traditional churches or in traditional churches as a mark of true spirituality. while drums and new lyrics were close to anathema. Let it be accursed well most of what went on in that debate and goes on with that debate today is more of preference than anything else. It is more of your style, more of what you like, more of your concept rather than clear teaching of scripture. Uh, Newer contemporary music styles and worship bands or praise bands were promoting authentic worship with in with the times and lyrics that everyone could understand and hum along to and a more lively presentation, a more spiritual experience versus the dry old dusty books called our hymnals. And all of it just battling uh, back and forth. And now I have my preferences and you have your preferences. And I'll just go back and say what I said earlier. It's not about you and it's not about me. Our concern ought to be what glorifies and honors God. In the act of worship, what is it that God wants? What is it that should mark us? What should underlie everything that we do? And Jesus gives that in two aspects. First he says we must true worshipers, if they're to worship the Father, will worship in spirit. Spirit, we must first see that that no worship that you can offer up today is acceptable unto God apart from the awakening, the regenerating, life giving work of the Holy Spirit. Without God's saving grace in your life, no worship that you offer up will be acceptable. I think this is mentioned in John 3.16, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit, or three six: that which is born of spirit is spirit. And in those of you that carry an NIV Bible, that is the way they interpret this, by capitalizing Spirit with a capital S. Worship, true worship to the Father ought to be offered up, empowered, and through the Holy Spirit at work in our life. Yet others look at this, agreeing with that assessment, but look at what Jesus is saying here is that true worship is more than just formal ritualism. It is more than just going through the motions of getting up, offering a prayer, giving announcements, singing three songs, reading scripture, hearing a sermon, and finally getting to go home. And calling that worship, it's more than just going through liturgy for churches that go through liturgical uh, seasons and all the process of that. It is first, worship is first inward. There's an outward manifestation of worship which may vary from person to person. In fact, most of us, we don't know what to do with our hands. A show of hands if you're that way. So you do know what to do with your hands, right? But you know, I've seen it. I've sat up here not knowing what to do with mine. I'm clapping sort of a little bit. And it says, clap your hands. And so I stop. That's because of my awkwardness. And because I know you're not clapping either, and I don't want to stand out. So there's different manifestations, different outward realities of worship, a way, a way it comes out in some ways. But uh, some of us are crying. Some of us will shout. Some of us raise our hands. Some of us clap. Some of us uh, weep. Some of us just say with, with, in our hearts, thank you, Lord. And uh, there's different ways it manifests itself. But at, at its essence, worship is, is from the heart. It's an inward act. It is an inward treasuring of God. It's an inward view of God which lifts our heart. That's, that's where worship begins. We cannot worship God just going through the motions. It's not emotionless just saying the words on the screen just because that's what we we're supposed to do. And some of us don't even do that, if we're honest. I don't know you who you are because I stand up front. But Jesus rebukes the people of his day, doesn't he, when he says in Matthew 15:8-9, "The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines, uh, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." They are going through the motions. They have all the right things. They have good stuff, but at the end of the day, it is not me that they're worshipping. They're just going through the motions. They're worshipping their traditions. They're worshipping whatever else that they may have. You see, worship involves the inner man, the mind, the affections, which moves our will. Secondly, he says this, not only must we worship God in spirit, he adds to that, verse number 23, and truth. These are those who the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Lights and fog and music Genre is not worship. There, I said it. They are productions. They set a mood. They create a space or an environment, an atmosphere, but they are not worship. It's not what worship is. An organ and piano and violin and all those things in and of themselves is not worship. Sometimes last year, uh, during one of the weekend shows down the road here, uh, the 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 group guys and girls began singing a uh, a volley of Beatles songs. You should have seen the whole place went wild. I mean, it was crazy. I thought they were going to storm the stage and all that stuff. And what you've seen was amazing as I was sitting there thinking why they didn't pick "I am the wolfman" or something like that uh, or "I am a walrus," or whatever you sang. If you know what that song means, maybe tell me afterwards. But they begin swaying their bodies. I mean, these are, these are dignified, older people, swaying their bodies and their arms took their phones out and turned a flashlight on. I mean, you thought you were at a, a rock concert. I mean, it, they they were just getting into it. Nostalgia of the good old days, I don't know what was going on, but it was, it was interesting to watch. Let me ask you a question. Was that worship? Music is helpful and can be very helpful, and sometimes music can distract us from the reality of who we're to worship. Let's be honest about that. It can aid us, and it can aid lyrics and help us, and, and it can rejoice and lift our hearts and spirits, but it, it can also overpower what it is we're supposed to be worshiping, who it is we're supposed to be worshiping. We need not only, we need not only passion, we need not only feelings and, and, and a heart in worship, but you must worship with the mind. It's not mindless letting go. It is a filling the mind with the reality and the truth of who God is. You remember earlier he says you guys are worshiping God, but you don't even know who you're worshiping. You're worshiping ignorantly to the Samaritans. Our worship must be informed, must be according to the true reality of who God is. What we sing and how we pray and what we confess matters. It is truth that guides us and fills our mind with knowledge and ignites our heart with passion. It's not one or the other. It's, and that is why we must and why we are so word-centered in our gathering. As we come together and we open our Bibles and as we sing the songs that we sing, uh, we we pay attention, we, we look at, we consider the words and the things that are being said because they inform us, they teach us about God. To put it another way, we we make it our aim to read the Bible, confess the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and preach the Bible, because it is there in his word that God meets his people and reveals himself to us most clearly and most consistently in his word. And as we come together, worshiping God in spirit and truth, Piper sums it up this way for us. The inner essence of worship is to know God truly. And then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love and serving others for the sake of Christ. And he's saying basically as we treasure and value and prize God, as we enjoy him, it flows out in two forms of acts. We find in Hebrews 13, and that is the sacrifice of praise to God and the fruit of lips acknowledging his name and the acts of kindness and good that we do towards one another, which are sacrifices pleasing unto him. In conclusion, let me just say this. We might recall what the psalmist says in Psalms 96 that was read for us this morning, seven through nine. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Christ has come, gathering us around himself so that we may see the beauty and splendor of who he is. And in just like when we worship those distorted image of God and they distort us, so when we worship the true image of God found in Jesus Christ, it changes us from one degree of glory to another, restoring the image of God in us making who making us who we ought to be. Now I know and I don't take it for granted this might sound very odd to some of you, and yet this is the kind of worship the Father is seeking. This is the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. These are the kind of worshipers Jesus is making, as he is doing with this woman in Samaria. But you know, every one of us in here at one point in our life was led astray by our passions, worshiping our pleasures, something else other than God. But through his goodness and his grace, he has saved us from that kind of futility. And that is the offer of the gospel, turning away from futility, turning away from the, the distorted understanding and view of God, which we give our adoration and praise and in all the forms that it demands of us to turning to God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And maybe you've come here this morning with that distorted view of God. And I would just encourage you, seek Christ Turn to him and let go of those things which will kill you, which destroy you. To him who shows us the beauty of God and gives us life everlasting. Turn from worshiping the things created to him who created us. You know, in that process for us, for you believers this morning, it is in the worship of God we find our deepest joy Our greatest assurance, our hope is strengthened, our convictions are settled. And so let me just encourage you again as you leave. Let your life be one great act of worship to our Heavenly Father. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your time this morning, for the time that you have given us this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the work and uh, you have changed our hearts. How we have treasured so many things that are mundane and and destructive in our life. And and yet, even in that, you come to us and you open our eyes, you give us life, you awaken us. Lord, you you bring us to see the beauty of who you are in the face of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that does not know that experience, that they would not rest today until that—that that is uh, their testimony, until they come and find the life and the beauty that is found in the gospel and in Christ. And Father, I pray for all of us as we come together week after week. Worship is, is a part of our life. It, it is our life, really day after day, but especially week after week as we gather together on the Lord's Day. Remind us of these simple truths as we prepare our hearts to come with joy and and thanksgiving as we come to see the Lord and, and as we come to know more about him. We pray that you enable us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.